Basically, you don't necessarily have to know um, how everything works or how to make it work even um, for it still to be beneficial to you for a car, like a car, for example. I don't know how it works. I get in there, I press it, it goes. Uh, we're going to get into that. But let's continue our study of Lutheran worship. And we're looking at the service of the sacrament, part two. Got your handout here. I want to start uh, then with number two on your handout, which says, when Jesus says, this is my body, he doesn't mean, this isn't my body. When Jesus says, this is my body, he doesn't mean, this isn't my body. I mean, it's a simple, straightforward statement, right? Uh, when you hear it like that, you're like, okay, that makes sense. Um, and yet, for many Christians over the centuries, um, not to mention folks outside of the church, um, this is something that's given them a cause for stumbling. When Jesus says, this is my body, they think, yeah, but I mean, come on, really? Becky, you look like you want to say something. Okay, so is it a language thing that doesn't involve the possibility for it to symbolize? Uh -huh. Like if I line up bottle caps and rocks in the dirt and I say, this is you, you're going to go along. Sure. This bottle cap, that's you, Jake. Is this so your Thanksgiving day? I don't mean yeah. Jake is a bottle cap. Right. Could he have meant it like that? Or does the Aramaic language not allow for that? Or what were we speaking? Good. This is a great question. Okay. So Becky's question is, what, is it a language thing? Is it a theology thing? Or is it a little bit of both? Why is it that when Jesus says, this is my body, we ought to just take him at his word at that? Because we all can think of other examples when, like you said, you're playing football in the backyard, this bottle cap, this is you, and so forth. How, how can we know for sure that Jesus means what he says here? I think there's a few different ways to answer that question, why it is that we can take him deadly seriously. The first thing would be within the scripture itself, you have Paul passing on. So um, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11 um, is where Paul who's writing probably uh, with 1 Corinthians 15 to 20 years after um, the giving of the, the Lord's Supper, or the, you know, at, the last, at the Last Supper. Um, and he is recounting this for the sake of the Corinthians. Um, let's see here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay. Um, he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Okay. So a couple of things to uh, point out with this passage. First of all, in verse 23, Paul uses a technical language that describes receiving a tradition and handing it on. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered or handed down to you. This is only used in a couple of places, and by Paul himself, it's used um, uh, a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. Keep your finger in chapter 11. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. He says um, in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins, etc., that he was raised on the third day. In other words, Paul is handing down um, this tradition about the Last Supper, slash the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, with the same degree of solemnity and verbal precision as he does about the testimony of Jesus' own death and resurrection. So that it's very important for him that he hands it down as he received it. That he says very clearly, this is what Jesus said. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, And then he goes on to say, therefore, um, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So that Paul is professing a strong belief in what we call the real presence. That Christ is truly present in, with, and under the bread and wine. Um, you, we could also go to John chapter 6. I'm, I don't want to spend too much time there this morning, but John chapter 6 is Jesus' long bread of life discourse. And what's interesting with how John does it, John does not have, he doesn't have um, the scene that the other gospel writers do, the institution of the Lord's Supper, but instead he has this great discourse in John chapter 6 where Jesus is saying, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And then the people say, well, wait a second, this is crazy. Like, you're talking, we need to eat your flesh and, and drink your blood? And then, this is the really telling moment. People start leaving him because they say, this is, this is a hard word. Now, that's the moment where if Jesus were speaking merely symbolically, you would expect him or anticipate him to say, oh, wait a second, guys, I'm... I was just a metaphor. Don't freak out. You're not going to actually eat my body or drink my blood. Come back. Come back. That's not what he does. It's just the opposite. He doubles down on it. And he says to his apostles, to the, the closest disciples, are you going to leave too? So that's some um, testimony within the biblical witness itself that reinforces that. One other, one other thing. This is more just a, a conjecture, but I find it kind of interesting. In John's upper room discourse, let me see if I can find the um, exact verse. John chapter 16, let's see, Um, ah, John chapter 16, verse 29. So this is Jesus' upper room discourse. This is on what we call Maundy Thursday, the night when he was betrayed. This is when, this is in the context of where he's um, uh, instituting the Eucharist. And in that context, you have this line. In John 16, verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. <laughs> now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you, etc. So, so that John is signaling for us there that in the context, when Jesus is speaking in the upper room discourse, it's not to be taken figuratively. He's speaking plainly and not using figurative speech here. So that, to me, is very telling. I don't think it's um, you know, a, a total um, shut, open and shut case at that point. But I think that that also... But then we could also go um, you know, historically and just see how from the very earliest days, the way that the Eucharist was celebrated was with that sense of solemnity and taking Jesus' word at his word from the very earliest days and first and second generations after the time of Christ, that they were celebrating this as if he were actually present. So, is that helpful, Becky? Good. I'll, go ahead. Well, I find it interesting that 
<clears throat> and you didn't quite get to it, but there in verse 20, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there's this element of unbelief sure, yes, that right. is introduced right away. Yes. So it seems like the belief in what he is saying is really critical to the blessing that's derived. Correct. Um, <laughs> how do you discern the body? Right. I'm taking that to be the body of Christ. Is that Jesus' flesh, or is it we, or is it both? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you're a good Lutheran pastor too, right? So, absolutely. So, Pete's question is when Jesus says, whoever um, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Um, is he talking about Christ's real presence in the sacrament, discerning his, his body and blood present there? Or is he talking about the body of Christ present within the church? And I would say it's both. And the reason I say that is because um, in the near context... He's talking about the sacrament. Like you're reading that, and that's the most natural way to take it. But then in the larger context, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he's immediately going to go to his great um, you know, uh, analogy of the church as the body of Christ. So I think it's both and. But look where he comes from in chapter 10, 16. Mm -hmm. The cup of blessing we bless is it not participation yes. in the blood of Christ. Yes. So he comes from the individual. Yeah. Through Jesus, who says this is, yep. and then expands into we who believe yep. and discern him in who we are yes. as his people. Because we are what we eat. <laughs> Excellent. We are who we eat. Uh, I don't mean that in like a crass or crude way. But in a very real sense, the sacrament constitutes us as the body of Christ, as the church. What makes us church is gathering together around the Lord's Supper, and here the Lord is continually um, re remembering us, put it that way. Uh, he is putting the members of the body back together and strengthening us to be his body. So, yeah, it's both of us. Yeah, ma'am. question that occurs to me, go back to the Old Testament, there's reference to... Um, Life is in the blood. Yes, the yes. What's supposed to be in the flesh? Yeah. Oh, well, good. Um, so Matt's question in the Old Testament, Leviticus, elsewhere, talks about the life is in the blood. What's supposed to be in the flesh? I, I haven't thought of it that way. Do you have, do you have any thoughts? I don't thoughts? know. I just thought of it myself. No. <laughs> I, have, I haven't thought about that, but that, that's interesting. And, I mean, that is, I will say what I thought you were going to say is, you know, how do you get over that? hurdle when it says very clearly in the Old Testament, you shall not drink blood, right? And then you've got Jesus saying, you know, eat my flesh, drink my, drink my blood. Um, I had an answer prepared for that question, but you didn't ask that one. You threw me a curveball. Um, but I'll answer that question that you didn't ask. And then maybe it has some implications on the one that you did ask, which is that um, when God gives that stricture in the Old Testament, I think it's because, well, two reasons. One, because it was very much a belief in ancient pagan cultures that there was a kind of supernatural power in blood. Okay? And so this was a common pagan practice. And so by telling them not to do that, God is trying to distance his people from the practices of his, the surrounding pagan neighbors. But then also, and even more importantly, there's in the Old Testament, this happens in several cases, a sense of, how to put it? It's just... It leaves you a little unsatisfied 
Because it's continually pointing forward. It's continually pointing forward. The book of Hebrews really picks up on this. Like, now these sacrifices need to be made continually for the forgiveness of sins. You just imagine what a job that was for the priests. Like, it would just be physically exhausting, right? Each and every day, it left this sense of there's got to be more going on. There's got to be more to it. And when God says, don't drink the blood for the life is in the blood, I think it's very much pointing forward to the blood that you will receive, which truly is the life, which is, again, Jesus' big point in John chapter 6. Yeah, Court. Uh, two things I thought of to answer your question. One, if you drain the blood out of somebody, they're dead. Uh, right. And two, the way he refers to it, Jesus does, is the blood is kind of like the spirit and the flesh is this world, the two separate paths of us. Okay, so that's a way of thinking about it too, that you have the flesh and the blood is, in a sense, the flesh and the spirit, the, the life force and the physical matter. And they both matter. They both matter. Um, and actually, this is one reason, um, I think it still happens, but I know at the time of the Reformation, sometimes um, lay people would not be com communed in both kinds, in, with the body and the blood. Yeah. So flesh is really death. Court, you got your hand right on it. Um, the, the, all flesh is grass. The, the uh -huh. flowers uh, wither, the grass fades. Yep. But the word of the Lord stands for yes, it. Yeah. But this flesh that we walk around, it needs life. It needs the blood to it needs give the blood. blood. Yeah. Absolutely. That's very good. So flesh is death, blood is life. Flesh conjoined with the blood is life. That's very good. There you go. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give that some more thought, though, too. Um, the, the, our small catechism still gives just the, this great simple definition of this, what is the sacrament of the altar or the Eucharist, etc., it's the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Right? Simple, straightforward. Um, I'll get in a moment into the how that can be and how we ought to uh, approach that question momentarily. Um, Jesus does institute it separately both this is my body and this is my blood. So number three on your handout, his blood is poured out for the new covenant this is significant. It's poured out for the new covenant. The language that Jesus uses here um, ties up very tightly with the Old Testament. So he says, drink, it, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the, is the cup of the, this cup is the new testament or the new covenant. The Greek word diatheke is best translated as covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, when you introduce that language of covenant, this has deep Old Testament roots, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And then this is really one of the most important themes from the whole Old Testament, because really a covenant at its essence is a promise. It's a promise between, well, it can be between two parties. It can be a reciprocal, mutual kind of promise. Or it can be a one-sided promise. I mean, even um, just in uh, cultures outside of the Jews, there, the covenant giving, you would sometimes have a, uh, a promise from a king where it was just a one-sided covenant with no expectation of return or fulfillment from the people. This is the kind of covenant that Christ has given to us. But 
That's not true of every covenant in the Old Testament. And that's where a lot of the trouble in the Old Testament comes in. Because um, notice this, uh, the reading from Jeremiah, what is this? Jeremiah 31, the bottom of your page one. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the prophet Jeremiah holds out hope for this new covenant, which he says is unlike this covenant that I had made with them, which they broke. Which covenant is that alluding to? Or what, what passage of the Old Testament is that alluding to? Anybody know? When I took them out of Egypt, think Mount Sinai, okay? The Ten Commandments. So this is in Exodus 19 and 20, where God is making this covenant with his people and he's saying, he says, we'll take a look at this. This is Exodus chapter 19. Genesis, Exodus. <clears throat> okay. So Israel has been, you know, they've been let out of slavery. They've come across the Red Sea. They've grumbled. They've been fed miraculous manna. And now they are at the foot of Mount Sinai in, in Exodus 19. This is right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And um, everybody's together and go down to verse, uh, verse 5. This is God speaking to the people. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, in that verse, what's the key word? If, if, that little two-letter word can cause so much trouble. Because if you will indeed keep my covenant, which, again, here it's talking about the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. If you keep this, all is going to be good. The whole rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's people not keeping this covenant, not keeping this, this promise. Two-way thing. So that, it's holding out hope, that, as Jeremiah mentions, of a new covenant. One that is going to be unilateral and unconditional. God acting for the sake of his people, forgiving their iniquity, remembering their sins no more. So that Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. And what is it for? The forgiveness of sins. Of course it is. This is just like what Jeremiah had said. Here's the new covenant shed for, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. All right. Questions about that or, or clarifications, comments? So this is a big kind of idea in biblical theology, just kind of the, the overarching narrative of the scriptures. God is a God who makes promises, and uh, he's going to keep it. You just got to run around. You got to wave your arms when you're in there. Dance. If you dance around in there a little bit, it'll turn back on. Can we see you dance in there a little bit? Okay, just got to think about that. <laughs>
Uh, the author of Hebrews ha- picks up on the same line of thought when he says, Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Okay. And on it goes. The idea being that Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, has initiated the new covenant in his blood. All right. We good on that? It's all good, little one. All right, so number four on this then. <clears throat> the power for making Jesus present is in his words, not the pastor, not the pastor's. The power for making Jesus present is in his own words. It's not in the person or uh, presence or words of the pastor. This, again, was uh, something that at the time of the Reformation was really a a point at issue. It was thought and believed that only a properly ordained priest was able to do this, as though the priest himself had some kind of power. I've told the anecdote before, which, so far as I can tell, is accurate. That um, So uh, in the Middle Ages, the priest, when he would be saying the words of institution, A, he'd be saying it in Latin. B, he would be mumbling it. There was no amplification. And this is, this is why Luther afterward would have the chanting. Chanting was a way to make sure that everybody could, could hear. So it's spoken in Latin. They're mumbling. They're facing away from the people. The people can just kind of hear what's being said. So the holy man is up there, and he's saying, hocus minum corpus, no, this is my body. But what people are hearing is hocus pocus. And uh, this is where that phrase hocus pocus comes from is the people thought the holy man is doing some kind of magical incantation where he says hocus pocus and the next thing you know, Jesus is there. Okay. Um, I mean, isn't it interesting how these things kind of happen? So the power for making Jesus present is not in any hocus pocus. It's not in any magic that the pastor wields. The power is simply in the Lord's word. And again, talking about biblical theology and the way that God works, goes all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And Pastor, you forgot to include the key verse, which is the next one. When God says what? Come on, people. Let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. God is able to create by means of speaking, by means of his word. And then we see this, I mean, throughout the ministry of Jesus. But to give just one example from Mark chapter 1, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling to him, and said, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. So that Jesus, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, wields this powerful word so that when he says, you're clean, boom, you're clean. This happens again and again and again in the Gospels. Same logic of thought. If Jesus says, this is my body, boom, it's able to be his body and the wine his blood. Uh, Charles Evanson, a liturgical scholar, writes in an essay on the divine service. He says, the words of institution aren't merely the obligatory recital of a historical narrative concerning the original institution and the the first supper in the upper room. In other words, 
um, the pastor isn't like one of those actors at Greenfield Village or something like that. We're not just doing like a historical reenactment, okay? These are words of consecration. Not that by means of these words we consecrate bread and wine, but that Christ speaks them by and through us to do and give now what he did and gave then. It's like time becomes telescoped in the, in the words of institution, in the celebration of the sacrament. So, And this happened um, in the celebration of the um, Passover for the Jewish people. And I think still to this day in the, in the Seder meal, where it's, this is the night. It, we, are, we were there. This wasn't our fathers who were there. We were there. We are there. There was this sense uh, among the Jews that um, time just collapses and it's an eternal present. And the same kind of thought is going on here in the celebration of the sacrament. We are there again with Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. With me on that? It's kind of a big idea. It's a little bit out there, but this is, sort of, this is what's, what's going on. But the natural question then becomes, flip over your handout, page three. The natural question becomes, how? How should we know this? Um, you know, and to, to kind of lift up the, um, top, pop the hood, so to speak, and say, hey, what are, you know, what, what are the works here? How is, how is this possible that God is present in simple bread and wine and able to be with us? But number five on your handout, we are called to be believers, not mechanics. We're called to be believers, not mechanics. What do I mean by that? Well, the mechanic is the one who's trying to figure it all out. We asked at the, at the beginning of the study today, there's something that you know how it works, other people don't know how it works. A mechanic knows how does it work. Let's get under the hood, see how it all fits together. We're not called to be able to answer that question but simply to, be, to believe that it's the case. Take the example of Zechariah and Mary. Okay? We're hearing these stor- their stories throughout the season of Advent. And maybe you've wondered this before, these two different reactions that they get. They both talk to the same angel, and it's two very different reactions. So first go to Zechariah here. It's from Luke chapter 1, verse 13, then 18 through 20. The angel said to Zechariah, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And Zechariah said to the angel, what? How shall I know this? Okay, underline that. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, oh, no, you don't, Zechariah. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Gabriel gets a little bit exercised by all this, you can tell. (laughs) How dare you? And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Where did Zechariah go wrong here? What what was his problem? Assuming we're not able to hear the tone of his voice, was he just a little bit too saucy? Lack of faith. A lack of faith? Okay, good. Let's drill down on that a little bit more. Yeah, Becky. It reminds me of Job. Mm-hmm. Wanted to, well, I don't understand it. Like, I'm not going to accept this until I understand yes. that kind of thing. And God has to be like, yeah, uh-uh. not going there. Very good. 
Yes, that's a that's a good uh, uh, parallel with Job. Or Job said, "Until I understand this, I can't accept it." But no, that's that's not the, not the case. Yeah, Court. Well, but I mean, he's a man too. Men always gotta know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, good point. But also, you're not speaking was a blessing. He said, "How will I know this?" Yeah. The angel said, "Well." Here you are. You won't speak. Yep. So now you know. Now you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Wow. I know, but you can't tell. And what a blessing for Elizabeth for the next few months. <laughs> no, 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 no. <clears throat> but now contrast this with Mary. Okay, this is just a little bit later, in Luke chapter one. The angel came to Mary and said, "Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you." But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Whatever happened to how you doing, you know? Um, And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And let's underline this. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? Okay. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Sounds very similar, Mary's response. uh, Sounds very similar to Zechariah's response. So what's the deal? Does Gabriel just have a soft spot in his heart for ladies? Or what's the difference between these two responses? What do you notice? I. I. Say more about that. It's all about Zechariah. Zachari- how am I going to know this? Uh-huh. I should be let in on this. And Mary's kind of like, wow, how can that happen? Sure, right. Allowing for the possibility okay. of the answer, God will do it. Sure, okay. So Zechariah more focused on himself, whereas Mary's more focused on, okay, God can do this. How's he going to do that? We'll see. But good. Any other thoughts that you'd add to that? She doesn't doubt that it's going to happen. Yes. She just wonders how. Sure. But she doesn't doubt that it will happen. She doesn't doubt that it will happen. So just notice, Zechariah says, how shall I know this? It's that question of, I want to be convinced. You know, persuade me, and then we'll talk, angel. Like, Zechariah, you've got an angel right in front of you. Don't worry about the details. I'm sure they're going to sort it out. But be that as it may. But then Mary's question is more, I think, a question of wondering faith of the, the wonder of it all. How will this be? Not doubting that it's going to happen. And then we know that that's the case because her next response when she decides she's going to quote the Beatles and she says, let it be, let it be to me according to your word. Isn't that song about Mary, sort of? Okay, well, there you go. Um, her, her response is the response of faith. I don't know. I don't totally get this. This is a mystery beyond my knowing, but let it be to me according to your word. So, all right, to get back to what we were talking about, in the context of the celebration of the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, we're called to be like Mary, not like Zechariah. The temptation is always to try and be like Zechariah and say, well, how shall I know this, Lord? This is a very you know, incredible thing that you're telling me. But is Jesus' real presence in the, the bread and wine, is that any more incredible than the fact that, you know, a virgin should give birth, that God should become man? I mean, I've heard somebody say, like, if you're going to start 
um, saying, well, that's just too incredible that Jesus would actually be present with the bread and wine. Like, where are you going to stop, right? I mean, the whole Bible is shot through with incredible things that we believe because God is faithful. and He's given us reason to trust his word. Like, you, you know, you, you're being kind of arbitrary if you say, well, I don't believe this. Like, he can become man, but he's not able to mysteriously be present with the bread and wine. Yeah, Matt? I think it's interesting, too, that Zechariah um, has apparently been praying for this all along. Sure. Um, your prayer has been heard. Yes. So yeah. he's asking for this all along, and then he's like, I'm granting your, your prayer, yep. and he's got to try to figure it out. Oh, How are you going to do this? That's a great point. That's a great point. Mary wasn't really asking. See, he wasn't even asking. Mary has found God's favor the way, you know, a kid finds a toy in the, in, in the playroom. Like, it just comes upon it, wasn't even looking for it. Here it is, right? Comes as a gift. Zechariah, meanwhile, has been praying and asking. This happens to us. I mean, this is such a very real thing. When we can be praying and asking for something, and then when it's there right in front of you, like, well, wait a second here. I don't know about this. And, um, well, I don't know. I'll be uh, kind of tell you guys a story about us when um, Ann and I, when we um, had gotten this call and we had, had really thought about it and, and prayed about it for a while and um, had really felt um, deep, deep in my heart like, yeah, this is, this is right. This is where, where God would have us and we're excited about it. But then like there's always that cold feet moment, right? With any kind of big commitment. And suddenly I was like, well, wait a second. No, but what about all these other things? And how shall this be? How shall I know this? You know? And then um, I think Ann said at one point, like, maybe God is just being kind to us and, and answering our prayers. We're like, well, there's a novel thought. You know? <laughs> you know? Sometimes as Lutherans, I think we can just sort of have like this default of, surely God is not being kind to me. <laughs> Like, he just wants me to suffer all the time, right? And that's not to say uh, that it's not the case, as I said last week, that we don't see God present in the negative space. We do. But by the same token, don't doubt him or question him or fail to say thank you when those prayers are answered and it's just, you know, staring you in the face. All right. A couple more minutes. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about, about the Pax Domini, which means the peace of the Lord. So this is right after the words of institution, and the pastor says, The peace of the Lord be with you always. The congregation says, Amen. In the Pax Domini, the shalom won by Jesus is announced. You guys know this is one of my favorite words, that great rich Hebrew word that gets translated as peace, but is so much fuller than that. It's, it's well-being, it's flourishing, or as one author puts it, it's the way things ought to be. Jesus announces that shalom because he is the Prince of Shalom, right? It's another Advent Christmas time reading from Isaiah 9. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Or, of course, Luke chapter 2, the Song of the Angels. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, Shalom among those with whom he is pleased. And Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, He himself is our shalom, our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Shalom is, in a very real sense, this peace is the watchword of the kingdom. Grace, love, agape, 
forgiveness, mercy, all of these are obviously pivotal, essential concepts, words for the gospel. But uh, shalom is almost the one that kind of ties it all together. It's the first word that out of Jesus' mouth, the resurrected Jesus to his disciples. Peace. Shalom. Shalom lachem. Shalom to you. Because now, in the deepest, most fullest, profound sense, that shalom is ours through his death and his resurrection. And when we hear that, when we say that in the context of the liturgy, the worship on Sunday, I just think this is so neat. It's like this, the Pax Domini, it places us, this is number seven on your handout, it places us with the apostles on the first Easter Sunday. It's like now we are, are standing wonderingly trembling beside the apostles as they heard that word of Jesus. He comes uh, among them in John chapter 20 and he says, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. He doesn't want this to be missed. This is the important idea, you guys. Shalom with you. Peace be with you. That's what's given in and through Christ. That's what we receive in the sacrament. So finally then, number eight on your handout. Um, after we, say, we hear the Pax Domini, then we have the sharing of the peace. And I think one of my first inklings, actually, I wrote about this practice, the sharing of the peace, or sometimes it gets called the passing of the peace. Some people want to pass on the passing of the peace. Introverts, this is a hard time for us, actually. You know, we're like, this is awkward. I need to go and talk to people during worship service. Can't we just carry on? We try to, you know, toe a fine line here at Trinity, where it goes for about 30 seconds. But uh, I, I think I had written about or told you about the time when Ann and I were worshiping at uh, LCMS Church in Rolla, Rolla, North Carolina. Good people of Rolla there. And it went on for 10 minutes, folks. I kid you not. The pastor had to shake everybody's hand in church. I felt extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> so can, we, can we please? I don't want to make any more small talk with people. But the share the peace, this is also where um, you've... you've probably heard about this and uh, and talks about it in the New Testament. This is where they would pa have the kiss of peace. So in that Greco-Roman context, you weren't coming up and shaking people's hands or even doing the bro hug, you know? You were kissing each other. And it wasn't even like a little kind of French thing, you know, kind of it's a peck on the cheek. I don't know what that is. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was a full-on that's right, never mind. It was, it was a full-on, like, lip-to-lip -lip smooch, the kiss of peace. I think it might go back to Psalm 85 when it talks about uh, righteousness and peace kiss each other, okay? Um, so imagine that. That'd be, a, actually, that'd be an interesting outreach strategy, all right? <laughs> going over to Trinity Arcadia, you're going to get smooched right on the lips over there. Um, or maybe that would scare people away, I don't know. Um, but the idea is... Now we are made at peace. Having received that peace with God, we now share that peace with one another and we go out as instruments of peace, of, as instruments of shalom to the world. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
be reconciled to God. One thing I missed. Yes. The picture on the front of the book. I don't understand the great flood by Nicholas Chaperone. It doesn't look like a flood. It looks like a bunch of people inside of the very good. I'll, we'll talk about that in just, in just a minute, John. But um, the idea being that now we are sent out in the power of the Spirit, instruments of shalom, having received it from the Lord, to share it with others. All right, very good. Next week, we are going to have the makeup of what we wanted to have last week, which is our survey presentation and talking about that. So, Lord willing, we'll be able to be here next Sunday for that. Hope to see you then. Thank you very much.